Hello, welcome to the first ever episode of the Darkest Dogs podcast. This is a podcast where I, Jake, talk to indie tabletop RPG creators. Designers, artists, writers, editors, publishers, really anyone who will agree to speak to me about indie tabletop RPGs. On this episode, I'm talking to my friend Justin Vandermeer, also known as Shouting Crow. Justin is a writer and artist who has created a number of really cool games, but is here today to speak to me about their game Hedgewitch. We also talk about starting out with indie tabletop RPGs, and what it's like to transition from someone who plays games into somebody who makes games. So if you think that's something that you will enjoy listening to, then please sit with us for a while and enjoy the conversation. Hi, Justin. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jake. How you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Oh, God, it's a brilliant day here in Canada, and uh, it's a good day to talk about games. Do you mean it's a brilliant day because it's Wednesday? Is Wednesday like your favorite day? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't have a day job, so no day of the week matters to me. Um, <laughs> I just mean the weather's lovely. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. Um, I wanted to start off by just asking you generally, um, we're going to talk about games, RPG games, probably. Um, what have you been playing lately? Oh, gosh. I have been playtesting Ailing Away, uh, which is a solo game that I made for Zemo this year. I have been playtesting the game I'll be releasing for Zemo next year called Psychic Undead Moose Riders. And I have a weekly Lancer game that I absolutely adore, run by Zeke Mystique. Have you played any Lancer? I have the book. I just never managed to get a group together to play it. Everyone always sounds interested in playing it and and wants to play it uh, when I talk about it, but actually putting the group together has never actually come together i think because the combat element of it is so tactical it can be a bit dense to get into to start especially if you're not using tools like CompCom and any of the other accessibility tools that they have available um that it looks so fun and the lore is so rich and it's very exciting but it can be really intimidating to start so i totally get that but just the the art in the book is so incredible i you know even not knowing whether I could put a group together for it. I just had to get it. You flip through it page by page and your brain just lights up because it's like, oh, this is beautiful. I have so many ideas. It's on my bookshelf under my collection of games that I want to play one day, but I'm happy to just have because the book itself is so good. Yes. Gosh, I have several treasure chests full of books that are exactly like that. I literally have a blog about that. Well, I mean, if you're going to pitch your blog, I mean, let's do it. What's the link if anyone wants to check it out? My blog is on Substack. It's called RPG Confuses Me. It is entirely a blog about how I keep buying beautiful books because they're gorgeous. But the moment I open their pages, my brain short circuits. And then I never play the games because they're just too beautiful for my brain to comprehend. So it's a blog where I take apart the visual design of all these gorgeous games, and then I figure out how to play them. It's kind of fun. Uh, that's rpgconfusesme.substack.com. 
I'll put that link in whatever place links go when you release a podcast out into the wide open world. And uh, people can check it out if they want to. That sounds awesome. But I do want to go back because you said psychic undead moose riders. And I couldn't just let that fly by without talking about that one. You said this is for next year. You're you're way ahead of your uh, schedule, I guess, in terms of being ready for stuff. I've not even really finished my zine month project for this year. Uh, are you not the kind of person who works on seven or eight things at the same time? Oh, I do. I just could never commit to having one ready for next year. Well, my goal for Zine Month next year is instead of what I did this year, which was to say I had the most of a game ready and I put it up and I was like ready to go, but it won't be printed and in people's hands until November. Uh, I thought that next year I would do what I really like about some Zine Month projects and have the project pretty much done except for stretch goals at uh launch so like right when zine month starts there it is it's done i'm just backing it to get it printed and that's really low risk for me because i'm the artist i'm the layout designer i'm everything except for editing basically yeah i much prefer to do it that way because it takes a lot of the pressure off you i think i don't know i mean Psychic Undead Moose Riders is going to be about, it's like a yeehaw cowboys in post-apocalyptic Canada. Uh, the entire picture of the game is that the players play something called a weird rider. Weird riders literally are these, you know, best of the best kind of personalities who have a rather unnatural link with a weird mount, which usually presents itself as a extremely large psychic undead moose and the entire idea is just to keep the survivors in post-apocalyptic canada from murdering each other for resources uh you're not a cop the entire idea is that you are just out there trying to preserve as much life as possible it's going to have a faction guide and all sorts of things it's it's a really big project and i'm really excited about it but it's definitely one of those start this at least a year in advance sort of things I'm interested in, I guess, the theme that you put forward there about what you, what your opinion about this game is uh, as to what it's about. And I think that ties in perhaps to the other game that we spoke about talking about, which is Hedgewitch. We'll come to the theme, I think, but I did want to ask a couple of questions about Hedgewitch first. And the first question I want to ask is just to check, is Hedgewitch self-published? Oh, entirely. It is all me from top to bottom, except for the editing, which is my brother. So you're a person who, you know, you work entirely on your own. Um, you do the artwork, you write it all, you do all the layout yourself. That is entirely correct. I really, really, really um, try to cut down on costs because uh, this is all I do. And uh, I had to learn all those skills. And Hedgewitch is, you, I can see it now uh, as I work on other projects. Hedgewitch is where I learned a lot of those skills. Was Hedgewitch your first project then? I believe it was actually my fourth. I started with a project called Fallow Ground, which was sort of a hex crawling, sort of spooky TTRPG from, you know, three to four players. I then wrote two. Uh, significantly smaller games like a, a honey heist hack or two and then i came out with a solo game hedge witch 
doing everything on your own then, what do you think about platforms for indie publishing for people who are these kinds of people who do everything by themselves? We've got Itch, we've got Kickstarter, we've got Drive Through. There's lots of choices, but all of them have their own sort of pros and cons. Do you have any particular opinions? I do, actually. Um, so I opted not to use Kickstarter for my first major crowdfunding campaign. Um, in fact, every book I've ever had printed, I don't print it until my itch sales cover, that's like digital PDF only, cover the print costs. So mostly when I release a game, it's just me sitting on it, looking at it, going, is there enough interest in this for me to bother printing it? If I raise that, oh, 200 some odd dollars of its color or something, I'll get 100 copies printed and then start bringing it to cons. It's a rough way to do business because I don't get to eat for, you know, six to eight months after I come out with a project. But I did, uh, of course, mention Zemo earlier, and I used Crowdfunder instead of Kickstarter for that. And I would do it again. I would absolutely do it again. Is there a particular reason why you gravitated towards that particular platform? Yes. Um, plus one, Tony, if you know him, was doing a lot for Zemo this year. And I noticed that Crowdfunder was really, really active in the Zemo community. They were talking a lot about how they could improve their platform and work with TTRPG creators and see what they could do to make themselves more accessible to us. And I really liked that. Also, they're Canadian and I am Canadian. And it takes a lot of the stress out of things to know that there's not going to be a million legal hoops for me to jump through. Also, they did this really cool thing where if, if I reached my crowdfunding goal, the same website could be used for pre-orders up until I closed them. The major drawback with it is that there's no cross-compatibility with them and backer kit or anything else. So collecting surveys is almost impossible with Crowdfunder as it currently stands. Do you think it was a conscious choice to, to go down that path of saying, I want total control over everything I release versus trying to um, approach a publisher or someone to produce your book for you? So I actually did approach a company to produce Hedgewitch for me. Uh, and I never got a response back from them. And I will not name names because I have a lot of respect for that company. I do have some experience publishing adventures through another company. And I find that process a little bit stressful. Uh, not through any fault of the particular company, but just because it is hard to figure out what it is that somebody else is dreaming of when it comes to something as creative as game design. It's just not a skill that I personally have mastered yet. I know exactly what you mean. I think I've worked as a writer on other people's projects before, and I'm always hesitant going into someone else's project because there's an expectation that you can write what's in their head. And that's, you know, a sealed box. You don't know what's in there, but you still have to somehow write something that matches the vision that they've created inside of themselves and that's very difficult and perhaps the experience with publishers is similar yeah i mean there's a couple of systems out there that i really want to sink my teeth into and write some really interesting things for 
but I know that as a DM, my my DM style is a bit left of center. Uh, and I don't mean politically, I just mean I run weird games for weird people. We have a lot of fun, but I'm absolutely positive I have never run a system exactly as a creator has intended. And low-key, my favorite adventures that I've ever read seem to come from people from similar places who just write what they want to play. I've got mad respect for that. But, uh, you know, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name some names. Uh, Mothership is a really big system that a lot of people are, are playing these days. It runs off of what is now known as the Panic Engine. And one of the first games that I ever played for it was Nirvana on Fire, which just came out with a version 2, which looks stunning. But uh, Nirvana on Fire does not feel like a classic Mothership adventure. It's weird. It's short. The f first edition was, I think, only 12 pages or so. And I ran that thing right into the ground. We pushed, we got every drop of goodness out of it. It was so much fun. But I don't think it was necessarily the standard, like, aliens bug hunt style adventure that Sean McCoy dreamed of when he first designed Mothership. And I don't think he dislikes it at all. I'm actually pretty sure Nirvana on Fire is pretty popular with the Mothership crowd. But weird stuff is good. We need to write more weird stuff. But that stuff stands out, right? There's a system that comes out and it has a style and that style draws in an audience. And then when the audience wants to create their own third party content, initially people will try and match that style and you'll get a sort of influx of, of things that are, what's the right word? A pastiche of the thing itself and then someone will come out with something that's completely left field. You know, like... Um, I've got an example. Bastards. Bastards is so good, right? Right, yes. Charlotte, or Selkie, just came out with, like, a Magical Girl Squad game for Bastards. And then also now Bratz, which looks incredible. It's just Bastards in high school. Yes, please. And that's good. That's great, because... It's, you know, the, the, the style that is put on top of the mechanics at the end of the day is just a paint job, right? It's, it's a skin and that matches the creator's intention for the world that revolves around those mechanics. But the mechanics themselves are usually just dice or cards or pencils and paper. And you can apply that to anything. Absolutely anything. I get really excited when somebody takes something and just runs into the hills with it. That's what got me into indie gaming, and that's what's going to keep me in indie gaming. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I like that stuff, and I know a lot of people that do like that stuff. And, you know, if I can pitch my own idea when I finally get around to doing it, Pulp Alien Morkborg is coming soon. Please do. God, I love Morkborg. I have never played a game of it, but I'm obsessed with it. Oh, it's fun. It's probably one of my favorite systems to play now, still. Uh, even quite, it's been out for quite a while now. I'm still having a blast playing it. Can I ask you a question? Go for it. What about Morkborg makes your brain light up? The thing that made me buy the book was the style. It was just something that I don't think I'd really seen before. Every single page feels like an art piece in itself. And I was used to playing games at the time where 
you could flick through a hundred pages of the book and probably not even see a single piece of art. You've just got, you know, blocks of text and stats and numbers. And Morkborg was just so in your face with what it was doing. And I, I didn't even care about how it played. I just bought it because it looked so amazing to me. Thankfully, when you play it, it's equally as gritty and cool as the the art makes it seem like it's going to be. It's very quick. It's very punchy. It's all of the things that um, D&D kind of isn't. You know, you don't get bogged down in, in long combats trying to decide what happens. You just go into a combat and everyone swings their weapon around and a couple of rounds later you figure out who's still standing and then you move on. I like that. That's a, that's a cool system to me. I couldn't agree more. It's like, uh, I have Cyborg on my shelf. Uh, I confess the only Morg Borg I've been actually able to flip through is the Rot Black edition. But I backed the Cyborg Kickstarter and uh, it's, it's like electrifying my brain with every single page. I don't understand how people parse the information on the page and actually make use of it though. Uh, it's just like serotonin every time I flip a page and, and nothing absorbs. Do you know what I mean? Cyborg is almost the next level up from Morkborg in terms of just blasting you with spectacle. Morkborg the book is quite readable, I think, but yeah, the, the Cyborg book is, is on another level. I think they looked at Morkborg and said, how can we take that further with our design of the book? They absolutely succeeded. It is a gorgeous work of art. And one day I will play the game, but not until I manage to, to like adapt myself to the vibrancy and excitement of the every page. I think you should play it. I think you'd like it. Maybe I'll play it with you one day. We'll figure that out. So let's go back to Hedgewitch for a second, because I, I read through it. Um, I like it. I think it's great. Uh, I had some things I wanted to ask specifically about that book. One of the things that stood out to me that I thought, wow, that's a really neat idea, was your choice of the two statistics in the game, cleverness and bravery. Could you tell me a little bit about the design choice behind those two? So a little context for the game first. I wrote Hedgewitch for my then 10-year-old niece because... She couldn't get her friends to play Dungeons and Dragons with her because, I don't know, Dungeons and Dragons is a lot to get into and it can be a little bit intimidating and she needed a game she could play on her own. And a lot of the design choices you will see in Hedgewitch are inspired directly by my niece. She is a very intelligent young woman and she is also an incredibly brave young woman and I wanted her to use the things that she had at her disposal and really, really exploit them and sort of embrace who she is and, and put them to play. I never really intended Hedgewitch to meet print. It was literally just for her, and it's turned out to be my most popular game. I made an, another game some months before called Bright Things, I think it was called. I wrote this game while I was camping with my niece. It uses three stats, clever, brave, or wild. Because these are things I think that anyone can find inside of themselves. That's what I was 
getting to in my own interpretation that I was going to ask you about. I wondered how close I was. I noticed that a lot of RPG games, whether it's intentional or whether they're just using what has been given to them from other games that came before, like Dungeons and Dragons, they focus a lot on the physicality of your character's body. Strength, how strong are you? Dexterity, how quick are your hands? And a lot of the actions that are presented for you to do in the game are tied to those statistics. So if you want to climb a cliff, well, that's a strength check. And the design doesn't account for doing things in a different way, necessarily. They could be a clever way to climb a tall cliff, like using ropes or pulleys to make it easier. But instead of giving you that as a different check, that I, I feel like most games are designed in a way to sort of look at the body of your character and and funnel things towards taking actions based on the, your physicality and keep those actions and statistics tied together. So I, I was interested that you didn't really take any statistics that were like body statistics. I think that's a good thing. I think that's great because people don't all have the same body, but people can still do the same things, just finding more adaptable ways of doing things. I think you're entirely right. There's definitely a theme of accessibility within Hedgewitch. Every time you flip a page, there's a reminder that different people may need to do things differently or need different tools to do them and things like that. Um, because again, we're all very different people. And it was really important to me when I was designing a game for a kid to break away from the more traditional Dungeons and Dragons style game design because I wanted it to feel cozy and safe even though it's a very challenging, very difficult game. Well, it definitely feels cozy. Um, the art, the atmosphere and everything is great. You want to know something cool about the art? Go for it. It is entirely made with shape tools in Affinity Publisher. Directly into Affinity. Yep. Absolutely. I did not have access to Affinity Designer or any other tools at the time, and I just needed to put it out very quickly. Uh, I didn't know how to use vectors, and I was using Affinity 1, not Affinity V2, so you could even convert to curves back then. Yeah, it was entirely shape tools that I just layered on top of each other till it made all the shapes that I wanted. And the aesthetic of the style is entirely what I could produce with that, which became very simplistic and cute. You must have drawn from your wild stat to do that, because that is a wild thing to do. I uh, I do not envy you having to do that. But that's fun, I think. Uh, using what you have, using the tools that are available to you is great. I think any new designer should absolutely look at the shape tools that are accessible to them and think long and hard about them every time because you can make some really graphic, striking, and interesting pictures out of them without knowing anything about art and not have to buy art or use, what is that, like copyright-free art? I don't know what it's called. I know what you mean, public domain, royalty-free. It's quite prevalent, and yeah, you do sometimes see the same pieces of public domain art come up over and over again in, in different works, and like I don't think there's anything wrong with using it. I don't want to say that there is, but sometimes I'll see a piece and I'll recognize it as the piece of artwork that it is, and that sort of snaps me out of my immersion 
with the book that I'm reading. And I think if you can avoid that, it might help people sort of immerse themselves into your world. If you can use something that's more true to yourself. But equally, I don't, I don't want to say to anybody, don't use public domain art because it is a great resource. I think it's a phenomenal resource and everyone should make themselves familiar with, I know Rat Girl Games came out with a project called uh, Human Art by Humans or something like that. I will give a link to you after this. Uh, it's like a mega collection of all the different uh, free or extremely cheap art resources that are available to people, including all public domain sort of links. Best mega document I've ever found for newer designers. It's incredible. But yeah, shape tools, underutilized tool. Hedgewitch absolutely pushes it to the extreme. There's an illustration on the second to last page of a heron that I am still proud of. So you mentioned something about the theme of Hedgewitch. And I wrote down some things about what I thought the theme was. Maybe you can tell me if I'm on the right track. Or maybe I misinterpreted it and I'm projecting things about myself. I always think that's an interesting exercise. Please, I would love to hear this. I think there's something in this game about losing your connection to nature. I also think there's something about how in this game nature seems to have a kind of sentience of its own. One of the lines in the book that stuck out to me just says, The plants are afraid. And it makes it seem like the world itself is alive. It is its own character. I am so glad you picked up on this. I, um, I'm, I'm a non-practicing pagan, I guess. Uh, I spend a lot of time outside. I spend a lot of time going outside to touch grass. And um, I think that digitally, especially we who stay inside to roll dice and play games, have lost a lot of our connection with just spending a couple days in the woods, you know, with a little bit of dirt in every bite of every sandwich that we take. And I think it's really, really important to reconnect every now and then as sort of a reality check. We live in such a big, beautiful, crazy world. And uh, my niece especially loves to be outside. Do you know what a hedge witch is? Could I give you a definition right now off the top of my head? I don't think so. But if you say the words hedge witch to me, it does create this sort of like image in my head of what I think a hedge witch is. But please give me the proper definition so I know. I, I, I would never claim to know the proper definition of everything because every subculture is going to define something a little bit differently. Uh, but... Generally, my idea of what a hedge witch is, is that it is somebody who maybe doesn't have incredible power, but is something of a, a wise person. They have an understanding of different plants and what they're good for, and they're very, very well connected with the people, and they have an understanding of nature. So it's right there in the title. So me cleverly thinking I'd figured out the secret theme uh, was actually just my lack of understanding of the fact that you told us what the theme was. Not at all. I mean, I'm sure there's a thousand other definitions for hedge witch in different communities. So the rules of the game is that you give these prompts that will usually introduce something that you refer to in the game as an obstacle. And I'm putting finger quotes around the word obstacle when I say that, because usually the obstacle in the game is 
a sentient living thing. It's an entity, a creature. And it's the existence of that thing which is disruptive to nature. So I, I started to think about maybe you were trying to say something about selfishness or the consequences of actions, because these creatures as obstacles aren't necessarily doing bad things. It's just they have their own personal needs. And the needs of those creatures are discordant with the needs of the world. And they aren't really accounting for that. Am I close? You're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, this comes back to narrative format a little bit. Uh, that any sort of plot advancement in most narrative formats requires some kind of conflict. The kind of conflict that is easiest for most people to understand is that different people have opposing needs. It is definitely the kind of conflict that I think a lot of children have to navigate consistently. You know, I want to go to the park today, but I can't go on my own and somebody else needs something today. And we can't do that until that's done. The way you phrase it makes me worry that I've made people into obstacles, which was certainly not my intent, but absolutely could be a way to read into it. Um, There's also a theme in a lot of my games of needing to develop relationships with people in order to progress successfully. And I think that definitely comes here. The hedge witch has to interact with the different creatures of the wood and sort of find compromises and ways to make things easier for everybody. Yeah, I think that I wasn't necessarily thinking that you were intentionally trying to say that any of these people were doing bad things. I was actually thinking the opposite. The the game mechanics present an obstacle because that's the mechanics of the game, but the theme of the game is not that they were doing anything bad, it's just that they had needs, and the world itself has needs, and they aren't quite married up, and the obstacle isn't that the, the person is the obstacle, the obstacle is how are you going to resolve that between these two things? How are you going to bring these things into alignment? Yes, absolutely. Alignment and balance are super important because, I mean, that's the big theme of nature. We've spoken about the book from a couple of different perspectives. We've spoken about the mechanics of the game, the statistics and things like that. We've spoken about the theme of the game. I wonder if you have any thoughts about how you balance rules, aesthetics, theme, and make the rules of the game fit the theme. Or do you not do that at all? Is the theme more of an overlay that sits over the top of the mechanics of the game? Are you trying to create a harmony between the mechanics and the theme? Or are the mechanics separate to the theme and you just stick them together with some sellotape and they work independently of each other? I think the most successful games are games that the rules exploit the theme. That they are directly involved with each other and have a relationship that you cannot separate. Um, In this game, Failing Forward was the really big sort of important thematic aspect that I was trying to utilize. You literally can't level up without failing in this game. And failure happens a lot in the beginning. But it turns out your failures are something you can use to your advantage later on. Without that, I don't think Hedgewitch would be what it is. It wouldn't feel like you struggled if it wasn't 
difficult and it wouldn't be satisfying if uh, you didn't develop from those struggles. So did you start with the theme of failing forwards and then try and design mechanics that utilized the idea of failure? Is that how you approached the design of the game? Absolutely. At the time, this is in December, a lot of the really popular solo games were based on the Wretched and Alone system, which, don't get me wrong, I love. Some of my favorite games are built on that system. But they're really depressing by design, and I wanted to push really hard in the opposite direction. So when I sat down to make a solo game, the first thing I went is, okay, I want failure to be something that you can use. And I built from there. So if someone is interested in Hedgewitch after listening to us talk about it, where can they get it? Oh, I'm glad you asked. So I have an itch page. I'm Shouting Crow on itch. That's shoutingcrow.itch.io. Hedgewitch is under my solo games titles. Hedgewitch has a spiritual successor called A Body to Die For. If you wanted to get into slightly less cozy and a little bit more body horror, but still have a similar style of gameplay. Uh, Hedgewitch is also available in print. It's currently available at Ratty in Cantati. They carry print copies. Uh, and it's about to be available at Knave of Cups. Awesome. I think if anyone is listening, do go and check it out. It's a great game. Before I let you go, this is the first episode of the, the podcast that we're recording. So I want to say thanks for taking the time to come and speak to me and talk about games. Um, but maybe if you're okay with it, we can talk about starting out. Uh, I'm starting out with this podcast here, but both of us at some point in the past started out with developing indie RPGs. So let me ask you this first from the perspective of being a player of RPG games. How did you first get into playing tabletop games? Really good question. When I was about, oh, I want to say five or six years old, literally sitting on my dad's knee, he opened up these fighting fantasy novels, which are kind of like choose your own adventures, but with stats. There was one in particular where you could play gladiators in a pit. Uh, sort of a labyrinth, and you'd have to fight your way through the labyrinth and eventually find each other in the labyrinth if you survived and then kill each other. My dad would pit me and my siblings against one another in literal gladiatorial combat, and the winner of that game was his favorite kid for the day. So this was like real high stakes. And that's how I got into role-playing games. Do you want to know something? What? If I turn to my right and look over at my bookshelf over here, I have my prized collection of the complete fighting fantasy series, Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone. And it is also how I got into playing RPG games. And if I take a minute to walk over there, I might be able to find which book oh you were God. talking about, if you bear with me a second. Okay, there were two that I thought it might be. I think 
that you might have been talking about Trial of Champions. And if I look at the cover here, it's got... It's a, it's a bright red cover. It says Trial of Champions in this pulpy white text. This guy's swinging a big ball and chain. His mouth's open. He's got fangs. He's screaming. I think that's exactly it, man. I mean, I have no idea if my father was running it the way it was intended to be run. Um, but that's certainly how he ran it. Do you know what I mean? Just starting two kids on the opposite ends of labyrinths and making them fight their way to each other. Which I think is just really good parenting. <laughs> that's amazing. I don't think there's uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. I think that's fine. Um, I know you have kids, and I have kids. Uh, my toddler, who just turned three, has heard me test playing a game as he's been going to bed every night for his whole life. And now, if it's just me and him, he tells me stories. So I did ask you how you got started playing tabletop games but i also wanted to ask how did you get started making games at one point i'm guessing you were a player and then there was a a juncture in your life where you decided i'm going to make a game do you remember much about that decision sort of i went straight from being a game master and i was the kind of game master where i had no money i literally had like i think dungeons and dragons 3.5 and then before that, I had like the like Red Book AD&D, and I couldn't afford any of the supplementary materials, like just a player's handbook, and that was it. Boom, done. And, you know, with my tiny little pocketbook, I would look at all the adventures that would come out for these things and be like, well, I can't really afford that. So everything was homebrew. It was all just our own little universe that we wrote in. So I was already very accustomed to sort of designing settings and designing adventures and things like that. I started writing 5e adventures for Baldwin Games for a little bit. And then um, I, I had to quit my day job. Uh, my toddler, bless his everlasting heart, he's my whole world. And there's just no childcare available in Canada. There's just none. It's brutal. And then I was sitting at home running a lot of games, but without a lot to do with my mental energy. Uh, and I noticed that there was a osr game jam on and i was like oh i've played the heck out of advanced dungeons and dragons i bet you i could make my own game and i started on hard mode by de designing a system from the ground up instead of doing like a clone or a hack of something and it was really really interesting and required a lot of different skills that i needed to learn and i just jumped in with both feet and kept running where did you start with game design I hadn't really thought about it, but the way you describe it as being an organic process transitioning from DMing, GMing games, you're already creating a lot of content for those games with your homebrew and then naturally just taking that and putting it on a page and giving it out to other people. There's maybe not a specific point. How did I get started with game design is an interesting question because I used to write for video games and that was kind of my job at one time. And that's going back a long time to the point where I probably can't even remember how I got started with that. But with actual tabletop games, it is just that transition. It's that slow transition. I have a really good artist friend called Ben who I work with on a lot of my projects, and he showed me a piece of art for something that he'd created, and I said, 
let me have that, please. I want to do something with that. And I took it from him and I wrote up this, uh, well, it was just a small spread, like a two page spread. And I pitched it back to him and he said, that's great. Let's do this. Let's make this a thing. So together we put together a, a little book and put that out. And that was really the first thing that I remember actually publishing in the TTRPG space. Whereas before that, I'd made so much stuff, but it was only for my games, really. That is super cool. I don't know. None of us got into this to make real money. You know what I mean? I mean, I guess if we want to, we can talk about the money. I don't know how interesting that is, though. Well, it's very realistic as a conversation for people who are just getting into it. I have a brutal story about somebody I know who had one of those really rough getting into the industry stories. And it's a little bit of a cautionary tale about setting expectations. I know a guy who spent over $1,000 on art for his debut title. That's a lot. It's a lot. That is more to date than I have made off of digital sales for Hedgewitch, which is my biggest title. I've made more than that off of physical sales, but digital? Yeah, no. So he does this digital launch for his product, which he has spent over a grand on and sold probably two or three copies in the first couple of weeks. And it was emotionally devastating for him because he put several years of work into this thing, I think two years into writing a game and all this beautiful art, and then launched it, you know, just posted up on itch and got almost no response from the community. And it kind of broke his heart and almost knocked him out completely of making games for life. Which is a shame, because this guy is an incredible designer, and I can't wait to see the cool stuff he puts out with, but he doesn't have an audience yet, because he doesn't have any content yet. This isn't an industry where there's a lot of money to go around for little guys, and that's okay. We're the sort of industry that at this point sort of survives off of, like, you know, running a couple of crowdfunding campaigns a year to raise enough money to get something big done. But even the take-home from that sort of thing isn't a lot. But I think it's really fun to make these things. And I think it's really fun to see people play things that you've made. And I don't think that the reward is necessarily entirely monetary. How do you feel about community copies? I think they're great. I am appreciative of anybody who puts out community copies for their game. It's a shame that we are put in a position where there's a tension between creators and audience, and the tension is the money between us. Creators want to make stuff because they want to make it, and an audience wants to enjoy, you know, having that thing and, and being able to use it to create joy in their lives through games and things like that. And there are some people that are blocked from being able to, to experience that, and that's a shame. Having community copies is just a way of saying, we understand that there's this tension between us, and let's try and bridge that a little bit. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, in the interest of like absolute transparency, Hedgewitch, the game we came to talk about here today, has 67 payments on record for digital sales, and over 200 community copies claimed so far. I mean... That's a huge disparity between people who could afford the game and people who could who wanted to play the game. Do you know what I mean? 
I'm also extremely blessed in the sense that the game has 39 ratings, which is absolutely unheard of. Thank you, by the way, if you're somebody who played the game and then rated it. That's incredible. Uh, which brings me back around to, I mean, just knowing somebody read it, liked it, and then took five seconds out of their day to like click that five star and maybe leave a comment on something. I don't know about you, but that's like, that'll get me through like a week. When you're a small creator, a single rating matters to you. A single one, any single person going on your page and clicking a star button or leaving a comment or review. When you're a small creator, that really matters. Really matters. It's it's like make or break my ego, kind of. <laughs> you know? Fallow Ground, the first game I ever came up with, I think had like four ratings on it for the longest time. which blew my mind every single time somebody put a rating up on it um because it meant that somebody had actually read the darn game and maybe even played it once or twice it doesn't get any better than that if there was someone out there listening to this who was thinking about making the transition from being a player of rpgs to being a creator of rpgs someone who was just getting started with the ideas of making their first game. What would you say to that person? Get yourself a really cool pitch, a sentence that makes your brain light up on fire, and then run screaming into the hills with it, full tilt. Do not stop because something seems unreasonable. Do not stop because something seems like maybe too much. It's never too much. Lean into the theme. Lean hard and have fun with it. Because if you're having fun, the people who play it will have fun. Write a game that you want to play. Thank you, Justin. What a way to end. Is there anything else that you wanted to say uh, before we close out? Um, am I allowed to get a little political? Who's stopping you? Trans rights or human rights? Fight me. Well, I won't fight you on that. You're assuming that I was going to argue with you about that. Okay, I want to thank Justin for joining me for that conversation. I also want to thank you for listening. If you want to check out Hedgewitch or anything else that we mentioned in this episode, you can find links in the show notes. Thank you so much. And if you enjoyed this, please let us know. Leave a comment or something. Otherwise, I hope I see you next time. Thanks for listening.